going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Time wasted rationalizing the mediocre could be time spent creating the magnificent. Just a little piece of... uh, Inspiration heading into your weekend. Hello there. Welcome. Greetings and salutations. Happy Friday, everybody. Hope all is well with you and yours. Let's fire into this one. Uh, He is now the 25th commanding officer of the Alberta RCMP. Deputy Commissioner Curtis Zablocki is joining the service here after a 28-year career with the RCMP, spending most of his time here in Alberta. He was also the commanding officer in Saskatchewan between 2016 and 2018. So he's back here in our province and joins us now in the program. Uh, Deputy Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. On a personal level, what does it mean to now be in charge of the RCMP here in Alberta? Well, that is, you know, it's a a real significant honour for me. Um, I've spent 26 years of uh, policing in this province in Alberta prior to uh, going over over to Saskatchewan for a couple of years. And it's uh, it's a real honour and very satisfying to be back in this province. What is number one on your priority list? What would you like to get accomplished right away? Well, for me, and, and I think, and I'm talking in big picture terms here, it's really about enhancing the trust and confidence that the RCMP have with our communities. That's how we protect Albertans. Talk a little bit about that. What needs to be worked on? How do you get that message across to Albertans? And how do you get that message across to your officers as well? Well, you know what? So we talk about trust and confidence you know things like accountability transparency come up but uh what's very important there is is actually listening listening to people people need to be heard right so um part of the the philosophy that i'm bringing with me is that as it relates to our employees uh, across the province and and particularly on our front lines in our communities in our detachments is is to be engaged with their communities to create those relationships enhance those relationships and, and and build that trust and confidence. Because, again, that's how we get work done. What kinds of things do you hope to bring over from Saskatchewan, if anything, that you felt worked well that might be good here? Well, if that's one of the things that uh, we did initiate uh, um, over the past couple of years in my time in Saskatchewan. And, and again, that applies uh, all across the country. And I think it applies uh, to policing in general because policing really is about people. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the the mindset. I know you you did a, a couple of different uh, crime reduction teams combating serious violent crimes in in that province. Is, is there anything on that front that you'd like to bring over to this province? So again, I think we were uh, very much on the same page uh, with Alberta at that time. Uh, we had similar challenges, you know, namely around uh, around property crime and and that. Those crime reduction teams, part of our broader uh, driven crime reduction strategy, uh, we had success in Saskatchewan and we're having success with that in Alberta. And so I think really the next steps for us is to keep that success, keep that momentum around those programs, uh, around those strategies. And, and you may be aware of uh, the project lockdown that we announced uh, mm-hmm. in Calgary uh, a month or so ago. And it's really the next phase where we're going to focus uh, uh, a little bit more on uh, victimization. 
Yeah, and you mentioned the the whole idea and the, the working together between the different agencies. And I wonder from that standpoint is how do you continue that work and further it even beyond the, the different policing agencies, but go to mental health professionals and make sure that you're not trying to, I, we, we talk about it here in the city all the time, is you can't uh, arrest yourself out of the problem. And so how do you keep that momentum going? Yeah, that's a, that's absolutely correct. You can't arrest yourself out of of, of most of these uh, issues, challenges, and situations. And you have to collaborate, and you have to work with your partners, and in a, typically in an integrated fashion. So we're really appreciative of the of the great relationships that we have with with our community partners, with our law enforcement partners, and. And, uh, you know, we've got initiatives ongoing like uh, the alert teams that we have in this province. And it's, uh, it's uh, those types of arrangements that allow us to, you know, to collaborate and, and have a real focused and strong approach to, to addressing these issues and challenges. I know a lot of the, the conversation has focused a lot on mental health, but it's also on addictions and whether it's the opioid crisis or anything else, it seems to be a, a big reason why the crime aspect has been fueled. How do you get to the bottom of that? How do you manage to work together with those different organizations to uh, nip that one right where you need to? Yeah, there's there's certainly some work to be done there, and you know the, the that situation. Obviously, we take that very very serious very seriously, and we know when we recognize the connections that that those addictions have, uh, you know, to crime in a general way, specifically to to property crime in a lot of instances. And we need to be on board when we talk about harm reduction, and we need to be working with our partners and and our stakeholders in uh, in many aspects. And you know, if we talk about safe consumption and and things like that, and it's 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 again about people you know i talk about people in the context of our employees but it's also about people that we serve uh, in our communities across this province so whether they're victims or offenders um, you know, uh, that collaborative approach certainly is, is the direction we need to go. I know in rural parts of this province, a lot of people have talked about the different cases where it's you have homeowners who are looking out for their own property and uh, using firearms or whatever to, to make sure they, they protect their castle, so to speak. And I wonder, how do you uh, make sure that you've got the, the trust of the people so that they're not trying to take justice into their own hands, but at the same time feeling safe enough that they know that they're going to have uh, everybody behind them. Yeah, and I think again, uh, it starts with uh, having an ear, an ear for the people. Again, listening to the people, hearing their concerns, their needs, and and being responsive to their concerns and needs. So I think that's really where it starts. Once where it start starts, and once we understand that, um, you know, we can build those community safety initiatives uh, around that. Talk a little bit about the challenges that you think you face heading into your term here as commissioner. What kinds of things do you see as maybe the next hurdles that you need to jump over? Well, for us, um, you know, of course, we talked about rural crime. So that's, again, it's still front and center for us uh, in the province here. Um, we we want to engage and invoke technology to help us with a lot of the challenges that, that, that arise uh, into the future. Um, you know, being intelligence-led is important for us, but also uh, engaging our communities, whether it's Rural Crime Watch, Citizens on Patrols, and having them being part of the uh, the solution and, and, and our response uh, to keeping Albertans safe. Sir, I appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us and giving us a little insight onto what you guys have in store over the next little while. Thank you very much, Joe. Always a pleasure.
Alberta RCMP Deputy Commissioner Curtis Sablocki, who took part in a, a change of ceremony not too long ago, actually, in the last week or so. Uh, again, after he was a commander in charge of the RCMP in Saskatchewan between 2016 and 2018. And it is that rural crime issue that I think is going to be uh, front and center for a lot of people in this election outside city limits, clearly. Um, but I think a lot of people are looking forward to seeing what each of the parties has in store, what they have in mind uh, as we approach April 16th. No shortage of news over the last little while, whether you talk about the provincial election campaign, you also have everything going on with SNC-Lavalin. Not to be forgotten in the grand scheme of things is Bill C-69 and a group of Calgarians and Albertans were uh, out on the front steps of Kent Harris' offices earlier today to talk pipelines and killing Bill C-69. Joining us now, Cody Battershill from Canada Action. Cody, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. What was the main message going into this afternoon, uh, into the noon hour rally? We need to stop Bill C-69, period, because we have a majority of Canadian premiers, we have First Nations, we have investors, workers, families, executives, associations, all against this legislation. The only people that seem to support it are anti-pipeline groups, and that's a problem. Why do you think that we're bending to someone or a group that isn't even really from here? Well, you know what? I mean, this is 10 years. This this whole uh, uh, energy misinformation campaign has been going on for 10 years, and we mm. haven't built any new pipelines. This is one component. So, you know, they have groups like the Pembina Institute, um, and Ed, Ed Whittingham's the former executive director, just got appointed to the uh, Alberta Energy Regulator, which I think is a horrible decision. But Pembina Institute, for example, received money from the Tides Foundation uh, to, you know, build, uh, a fight pipelines, support other groups that are fighting pipelines, oppose regulatory processes, increase the negative perception around oil and gas development in Canada. You know, there's all these different groups, and they all play a piece. Uh, 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 they all play a role in this campaign, and the campaign is block pipelines, make the cost of business uh, higher, encourage companies to sell and leave, and create regulatory roadblocks. So Bill C-69 is simply a part of that well-funded, well-organized, and sophisticated campaign, and we are seeing the consequences in our economy with our families not working. How surprised are you that we're still talking about this bill, given the the massive backlash that you have from, I would argue, the majority of Canadians? It is the majority of Canadians, absolutely. I am encouraged that people are speaking up, participating in our democracy, and that we are seeing that resonate. We are still talking about it, but it is in the Senate. You know, unfortunately, I think industry was a little late to the game when this bill was in Parliament. But there is a, a federal government majority. They passed this bill. And, and it's really telling now that you do have groups like, again, Pembina Institute, and Ecojustice and Greenpeace, all these groups. They're now saying, why do the senators need to hear from Canadians? They, we should just pass the bill. And that's not democratic. And that's a reflection of what they're simply what, what they're really focused on. And that's getting their agenda pushed through, regardless of what the impact is to Canadian families in our economy. Reading the story up on globalnews.ca, one of the quotes that really resonated with me was, let's stop playing these political games, because that's all this is at the end of the day, isn't it? It is. It's a political game. I mean, you've got SNC-Lavalin and General Motors in Oshawa. We are fighting for jobs in Quebec and Ontario. What about the jobs in the rest of the country? We are all Canadian. 
We all win when the resource sector is strong, and every job, every Canadian family matters just as much. So let's start to play fair with the energy sector and stop applying a standard to the energy sector and to the energy business that is not applied anywhere else. What would you like to see the energy sector, in particular businesses, do to continue to get the message even louder? Because there's a a certain amount amount of momentum that is uh, following you guys around, but it just needs, it's almost like you need that one more burst of energy. Yeah, so the momentum's growing, and we are very excited about our plans for the rest of the year and going forward. You know, we need to change the culture within Canada around how we think about our resources. We're proud of our hockey teams. Go Flames. We're proud of our national parks. We're so lucky to live where we live, to have this quality of life. Well, guess what? That quality of life is supported by our natural resources. That is the foundation, the bedrock of our national prosperity. We should be darn proud. We should be proactive, and we should be speaking up, and we cannot allow any misinformation, any fear-mongering, any fiction pushed by these groups to go unchallenged we have to stand up for ourselves because if we don't no one else will we need to change that uh that that level of understanding we need to stand up for ourselves always love listening to you when you're on with danielle or rob or anyone else so i'm finally glad that i was able to talk to you in person cody thanks for joining us this afternoon and giving us a little insight into today's event it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. You betcha. Cody Battershill from Canada Action talking about today's rally in front of Kent Hare's office. Will they hear the message? Uh, you be the judge of that. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Congrats going out to Jeff who takes home those CPO tickets happening March 29th and 30th. That, of course, Mendelssohn's Elijah. All right. You just heard we're going to do a lot of fact checking. We're going to be doing a lot of uh, analysis on all the different things that are being promised. And as part of our coverage, we're bringing you the Friday fact check. What are our leaders asking or what are they saying? Are they saying it truthfully? Emily Mertz has been working on this one. And Emily, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Love what you have been doing in terms of these uh, fact checks and being able to decipher it all because realistically there's always some element of truth to some of the things that are being said and some of the mud that's being slung and so this time around you took a deep dive into the UCP claim that the NDP's plan killed 48,000 jobs in four months what did you find? Yeah, so that's the big thing that we're noticing is that with every, nearly every one of these these statements, there is there is truth in them. It's usually the fact that just there's context or background missing. So with this one, we've heard several times through social media and through um, campaign events that uh, the UCP is saying that the NDP's plan has lost 48,000 uh, full-time jobs in Alberta in the last four months. So we went to the source, which was Statistics Canada's Labour Force Survey, And it does show the number of full-time jobs in Alberta fell uh, 47,700, so close to 50,000, from November 2018 to February 2019. So the numbers are accurate. Here's the context. Uh, First of all, Statistics Canada has quite a large margin of error, and so findings can vary quite significantly month to month. Um, the other thing to note, so is so just to compare, if you had looked at a four-month period, which is the same amount of time that they looked at, but you bumped it one month earlier, so from 
October to January, the loss would have been closer to 15,000. So that's quite a big gap. And so it, just like any poll, there is a, you know, a margin of error to take into consideration. One of the things that I was talking about actually yesterday with Trevor Toome was about jobs and even the, the kind of jobs, because you also hear on the flip side, the NDP saying, hey, we've actually created jobs, whether it's in the, pro- in the public sector or there are different aspects to that. So did you get into that side of the what kinds of jobs there are? Yeah, so over the same four-month period, um, we also, Alberta also saw part-time employment increase by 21,000 jobs. So, of course, not ideal. Full-time makes up four to five, uh, Trevor Toome told me as well, of, of jobs in Alberta. And obviously, it's, for a lot of people, it's more ideal full-time. Um, but it is significant to note that 21,000 part-time jobs were created over the same period of time. The other really interesting thing to point out is that Unemployment, while it is high in Alberta and certainly higher than we've seen um, in the past, employment in Alberta is also very high. Um, And Trevor explained to me that that's because the proportion of Albertans that either work in the labor force or are seeking work is higher in Alberta than it is in other regions. So while our unemployment rate is high, our employment rate is actually the highest in the country. What made you decide to go with that time span, November to February, is just the recentality? Because one of the things that I uh, brought up with Trevor as well was there, there's been that struggle since the oil price collapsed. And so there's been, there hasn't been, um, you almost have to look at it through that lens of, you know, 2014, 2015 to today as well. Yeah, so I chose that because that's the uh, duration of time that the UCP used to to calculate the nearly 50,000 jobs loss. Gotcha. So that's where I was looking at for that. And then I just, you know, bumped it back a month to compare. But you're right, long term, especially when you're looking at data like this, uh, unemployment rates and Statistics Canada, um, it's really important to look at longer term uh, trends. And so you mentioned 2013, 2014. I actually you know, got on the phone with Statistics Canada and got all the way back to 20, uh, 2009. So Alberta has seen unemployment rates, you know, similar to what we're experiencing now, even for a longer duration in the past, dating back to 2009 that I could find. Obviously, 2012 was very, 2013, the recession, um, uh, sorry, prior to that. And then we saw a significant recovery Um and then again, so it's just it's just very important to look at longer duration of time for trends. Um, the unemployment rate started to kind of go up in February 2014, uh, which was just before the NDP got elected. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit interesting to, to note. Absolutely. And, and speaking of the NDP, what did they have to say about all the allegations being floated their way? So the NDP uh, say that they have obviously invested in uh, job creation, and that when the recession hit, they made the decision to continue to build schools and hospitals to create jobs, Um, also obviously spending money Mm -hmm. to do that. But they are saying that, you know, unemployment cannot be attributed to one policy, that it's multi, there's many factors, including things that are out of the NDP's control, like um, the differential, the price of oil, uh, access um, to market. So uh, it's a really big issue. And obviously, uh, government is going to take credit when the numbers are good. 
And opposition is going to place blame when the numbers are bad. But as we see, there's so many factors at play here. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, if you go to the, the site, which I've uh, put up on my Twitter, at Calgary today, uh, one of the quotes, as a result, since the depths of the recessions, Alberta has created over 80,000 new full-time jobs, mostly in the private sector, which speaks to mm-hmm. your point about, you know, whether it's schools or hospitals or that kind of thing, those are j- public jobs. So it's not just government jobs per se, but again, it boils down to that question of what kind of jobs are we creating? And it's certainly a conversation that uh, both parties and all parties have been focusing on for sure. Uh, Emily, thanks for the deep dive on that one. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. Enough for All was the community-driven poverty reduction strategy. Now we have Enough for All 2.0. Joining us now to talk more about that is Franco Savoya. He's the Executive Director of Vibrant Communities Calgary. Franco, as always, nice to chat with you. Thank you. Nice to chat with you as well. What is the difference between 1.0 and 2.0? Well, the there's been... Uh uh, there's two or three things really quickly. One is that uh, there is a now, we now have a national strategy from the government of Canada. So we're aligning it with that right off the bat. And so we're going to have a different measure. It's called the market basket measure. And the government of Canada will produce the data every year so we can track it. So we don't have to do that ourselves. So that's a, it's a, it sounds like a small thing, but it allows us all of us across the country to talk together about that. Relative to Calgary itself, the, the, the critical thing we've done is that we've learned from all the stuff for the last four or five years. And so we've kind of changed the, the goals for the most part remain the same, but we now have what we call levers of change. So it's really focusing on those things that make a difference in people's lives, transportation, uh, employment, food, housing. And so each one of these, kind of we call them levers of change, and there are all kinds of people and organizations doing work in these areas. And what the strategy is going to try to do, because there's energy in all of these areas, is bring that energy together and hopefully create more synergy, (laughs) take that energy and really make it so that we can really make a, a, a more integrated approach to solving and helping people lift themselves out of poverty. And it sounds simple. It isn't, but we've learned from all of that is you've got to go where the action is. I suppose a lot of it, too, has to do with the ever-changing uh, economy here in oh, Calgary usually. in particular, right? Usually. Like, you, I assume you guys learned quite a bit out of that and how you needed to be maybe a little bit more flexible in the delivery of some of the services and that that happen within the world of poverty. Absolutely. I think the, I mean, there's no question. I think in the last two or three years, I mean, there are people that literally were have had relatively the good life and now may be down to one earner in their family at a much lower paying job. And so those kind of adjustments for sure. And so what we're hoping is, is that we can literally leverage the, all of the good work that's going on at the ground because there is there are, we have hundreds of organizations across our city doing all kinds of great things but we tend to be working in it all in our own kind of silo or our own kind of area and we want to we want to bring it together and so we've uh, started this what we call shared values agreements or champions so that people can align with the strategy and hopefully in the end you and I and everybody else doing a little bit 
can make a big difference by, by working together. Mm-hmm. And one of the things to your first point about the federal government side yes. of things is I, I assume what it is almost is being able to speak the same language when it comes totally. to, say, numbers and that kind of thing, because totally. everybody's got a different idea. So talk about that yeah. aspect of not only working in silos, but also speaking different languages, it seems. Absolutely. And, and by the way, I mean, there's been some really positive things that have happened, you know, like in the last three or four years. So we learned from that, too, is the the market basket measure, if we can all use that, we're going to be encouraging the provincial government to do the same because then we can talk to each other. That number's produced and we can say Calgary is at this level. Why hasn't it changed? Who's doing what? And, you know, and begin to kind of um, uh, bring that together. So I, I, we're quite excited because the, there's the response uh, from organizations and people have been really, really positive. They want to do this. We want to work a little differently. So hopefully 2.0 is going to give us kind of a, a new thrust uh, to ref- because we, we didn't change the strategy. We simply refreshed it. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And there's, from what I understand, a bit of a, an aspirational target that comes along with yes. this. What are you hoping to get accomplished well, over the next well, little while? It's a really good question. I think the uh, <clears throat> the national strategy of what's called the Opportunity for All they want to get 20% reduction. Uh, this is using the basic income measure by 2020 and 50% by 2030. And because our strategy takes us to 2023, we've just got an aspirational target of, of 30%. Uh, so they, it ties in between. But there's been some positive achievements. There was a report out uh, last, I think, t- two weeks ago uh, from the federal government using the market basket measure from 2015 till now, uh, our poverty reduction, sorry, child poverty in Calgary was reduced by 50%. Mm-hmm. So using that measure. So like, like, and then, and then the, the family benefit, the child family benefit in our province, really, really positive. It's had a huge impact. And that's why we think child poverty has been reduced because you've got the enhanced child benefit with the federal government the child benefit in the province, and even the, I know there's lots of conversations in the, in the, in our, among mm-hmm. our listeners here in Calgary about the, 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 the carbon, ta- carbon levy or whatever, but for poor families, they're getting some money back from that, you know? Right. It's, uh, it's helping that as well. So a whole bunch of things have taken place. We just got to do more. A wide-ranging discussion to be sure to be had, and it's all part Absolutely. of uh, 2.0 here for Enough for All. Franco Savoya over at Vibrant Communities Calgary. Thanks so much for the time today, Franco. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Take care. Just want to take a moment to thank you for taking the time to download and listen to the Calgary Today podcast. Don't forget to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'll chat with you soon. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.